Uh, thank you so much for coming today. Um, as I mentioned in my remarks earlier, uh, we're delighted to have as our retreat master, uh, Father David Anderson, uh, to come and speak to us. Father David Anderson is a, <clears throat> is a priest of the Ukrainian Catholic uh, Eparchy of Chicago, or Art Eparchy of Chicago. Uh, he's been a priest for 36 years and uh, is now the uh, Eastern Catholic chaplain at Wyoming Catholic College. So that's a wonderful new development. Uh, if you're familiar with Catholic College, it's a wonderful new development to have an Eastern Catholic chaplain uh, on, a, on a Catholic campus. Um, I've known Father David now for uh, 11 years. Uh, Father David would come and speak to our churches in, and missions in North Carolina, and uh, just delighted to have him come. He does speak also uh, at, for the Magdala Apostolate, which is an apostolate to uh, religious and monastic women, and uh, that's done through the uh, Institute of Catholic Culture. And so you may uh, hear of him or see some of his videos uh, when, he, uh, when he delivers teachings to nuns and, uh, and monastics who are cloistered. So this is a, a wonderful uh, opportunity to have Father David come and speak today. So with that, I'll turn it over to Father David. Please welcome him. Thank you. Let's stand for a prayer. I know we've had lots of prayers, but let's have one more. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who are everywhere present and filling all things, the treasury of all blessings and giver of life, come and dwell within us and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, O gracious Lord. In giving birth, you retained your virginity. In falling asleep, you did not forsake the world, O Theotokos. You were taken to life, O Mother of Life, and by your prayers you deliver our souls from death. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Deacon Daniel, for your kind welcome. It's usually the case when one is asked to speak at a pilgrimage that the uh, address is given after a long morning in church and then a nice heavy lunch. <laughs> and then the speaker begins. So, my sympathy. <laughs> and I hope you have some sympathy for me as well. Uh, before I begin the talk, I, I do want to just mention quickly uh, my, my new uh, appointment, my new task in serving the church, because it's come after 36 years of being a parish priest, and uh, I was offered this rather surprising and daring proposal of uh, coming to Wyoming Catholic College, which has existed for 12 years now. It's a small, uh, humanities-oriented, very traditionally Catholic school in Lander, Wyoming. And there has been, from the beginning of that school, a certain degree of Eastern Catholic influence and presence, both in the faculty and in the student body, though up to now, uh, it is certainly uh, primarily a, a an institution of the Roman rite, of the Roman tradition. Nevertheless, the uh, faculty and administration there uh, decided that they needed to have a second chaplain in addition to the priest who was already there, Father Paul Ward. And the decision was made that the second chaplain would be a, a Byzantine Catholic priest. 
not simply to provide care for the Eastern Catholic students and faculty, but to provide the presence of the Byzantine tradition there at that college as a formative influence for the, for the college in general. So that's quite a singular thing uh, to be going on. I know of uh, many Catholic schools that at least will have an Eastern Catholic priest come in from time to time to celebrate the liturgy or perhaps to be a talk or to give a talk. But I think that I am the only live-in Eastern Catholic chaplain at a Roman Catholic college in this country. So uh, I, I want to use this opportunity to make a little plug for Wyoming Catholic College. I've only uh, lived there for a month, yet I've known about it for, for quite some time. So if, if you are of college age, or if you are parents that have children of college age and have been wondering where uh, you might go or, or your sons or daughters might go to have a very solid humanities-oriented education, not to uh, forget the other uh, signatures of Iowa Catholic College, which are its famous outdoor program and its uh, very good choral music program. But you were hoping that you, that you or your children uh, would be able to go somewhere where their life of faith in the Byzantine tradition would be nurtured, then I recommend to you now Wyoming Catholic College. So that's my little uh, spiel. The talks that I am giving uh, now and later this afternoon and this evening at the service of the Akathist were given the titles uh, Mary, virgin, disciple, and mother. And one might think from such titles that there are going to be three very neat separate talks given. One about virgin, one about disciple, one about mother. That's not what I'm going to do. <laughs> because it's never good to chop things up and try to package them in neat little packets in, in uh, terse formulations by which we can stick labels on what the church calls in the feast we are celebrating an unutterable mystery. She is an unutterable mystery. Uh, we sing... Now, sometimes when I quote the liturgical text, I'm going to use the translation that, that I am used to singing, and that might be somewhat different from the translation that many of you are used to singing, but it's the same text, all coming from the original Greek Byzantine hymnography. We sing of her, the bounds of nature are overcome in you, O spotless virgin. The bounds of nature. It's a phrase perhaps we don't use or think about very much the limitations of our experience of life. We sing of her. They're overcome in you. And then that hymn goes on to say that in childbearing, you remained a virgin. That's an example of the bounds of nature being overcome because the two, childbearing and virginity, 
except in her case, don't go together, usually. The bonds of nature are overcoming you. In childbearing, you remained a virgin. And in death, you were betrothed to life. In death, you were betrothed to life, the hymn says. Whereas, in our experience of death as fallen, sinful mortals, we would say, in death, we are betrothed, or we might even say we're married to the dust from which we came. But we say of her, in death you were betrothed to life, both Theotokos, virgin after childbearing and alive after death. Save your inheritance forever. There's another hymn that, unless you have the good fortune of being able, and it's not a, it's not a situation that's very much available, uh, in, in North America, in the, in modern times, unless you're able to go to weekday services in a church that has them, or unless you pray them yourself, and I hear of uh, more and more people, not necessarily clergy or monastic types, but the people of the church who try to do that in some sort of way. You need to have access to the daily services for this text. It would be sung, oh, this coming week for the 21st of August, so I guess on uh, Tuesday evening at Vespers. It's a wonderful text. It, it says this. Of course, it really sings this, but I will, I will say it right now. Today, the choirs of virgins mystically assemble. They encircle the bed of the Virgin Mother. The souls of the righteous join them to honor the Queen. The first offer their virginity as myrrh, while others present the spiritual melody of righteous living. It is fitting to surround the Queen and Mother of God with subjects radiant with virtue. As for us, let us lay aside all earthly cares and join them with purified lives. Let us bless her with one voice in hymns and spiritual songs, for she is truly mother of God. There, the Holy Virgin is described as being surrounded not simply by those who at the hour of her death were with her. Tradition tells us that the apostles assembled from, as they were scattered all over the place, they were brought together by the command of God to be there at the passing of the mother of the Lord. And along with the apostles, even some of the early bishops of the church, it is said, were present there. But this hymn speaks of the mother of God being surrounded by a vast gathering of people, and specifically the virgins and the righteous are mentioned. That the virgins, in their unique way, offer her, who is both virgin and mother and disciple, offer her their chastity, while the righteous, and of course 
Where did the virgins come from? The virgins came from the righteous. That's how we get virgins, from righteous parents. The righteous also are there. And they offer her the gift of their virtuous living. And thus, the virgins and the righteous, described from all ages as being present there, together offer this symphony, symphony of love for her. Now, it seems to me that if we are to speak of Our Lady as virgin, disciple, and mother, before we can do that, we have to speak of something more basic more essential, and it will not do for us to overlook that most basic thing, to take it for granted. And very simply, what I, am, what I mean is that she is the human person, person, who has come to the fullness of what God destines every person to reach, the fullness of personhood. That is why the boundaries, the limitations of nature are overcome in her. We use that word person very frequently. But, as is so often the case in the way we speak, because we tend to be less and less precise in our use of words. And so, for example, perhaps one of the worst confusions of words is when people use synonymously the word person and individual speak of persons and individuals, as if they're the same thing. Isn't that mostly what we hear interchangeably used? But persons and individuals aren't the same thing. In the language that is foundational for us, the language of Scripture, the language of the Church Fathers, which is, of course, the Greek language, the word for individual is idiotis. <laughs> I need not go further as to what English word we get from that. Why is an individual an, an idiotis, or an idiotis an individual, since going from Greek to English? Well, that's because an individual, definition of an individual proceeds entirely from the self. Self-defined, self-realized, self-fulfilled in an environment of self-esteem, right? So the limitation, and, and of course very great, the limitations of individualism, of course, the more one becomes an individual, the less one is able to be in communion with others. Because 
the individual finds his or her realization in the self. In that strange fabrication that our time especially, and, and perhaps we, we ourselves uh, fall into the trap of using this expression, my life, I have to live my life. I have to be free to be fulfilled in living my life. That is individuality. Personhood, on the other hand, is experienced relationally. relationally. And where does personhood have its origin? Of course, personhood has its origin in the divine persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, And because of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have created persons, the uncreated persons, in the perfect communion of the divine life, willed to fashion created persons. That's a great mystery to consider. Uh, It's not possible for us to get inside the mind of the divine persons. And because we are so flawed with individualism, we'd be very tempted to ask, why would divine persons who are perfect in every way and have a perfect communion of perfect love with and in each other, why would they want us? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit One God, I speak, I said they, but God is both singular and plural, not either or, but both and. They did not need us, yet in the communion of the divine life, as an overflowing of their love, they wanted not only us persons, but all the rest of creation, and of course the whole dimension of invisible persons, the heavenly hosts. These persons are called into being, created persons called into being by the uncreated persons to have a share in God's own life. Of course, we speak and sing and pray of that constantly in our services. You have brought us from non-existence into being. Every time we have the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, you have brought us from non-existence into being. And when we had fallen, you raised us up again and did not cease to do everything until you led us to heaven and gave us your kingdom, which is to come. So we are created to become sharers in the life of God. We don't become divine persons. A creature can never be a divine person, but a creature is made to share the life of the divine persons, to live inside God rather than outside God. Just as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in one another, If there is one thing that the divine persons have not the slightest 
bit of, it is individuality or independence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not independent of each other. Our Lord Jesus Christ said that he had no will of his own, but had come to do the will of him who sent him. He always spoke of himself in relationship to the Father and the Holy Spirit. Each one of them is distinct, yet they share that divine life. He said, the Father is greater than I. Oftentimes, theologians will say, well, he's saying that in his humanity. Well, yes, he is saying it in his his humanity, but he's saying it in his humanity because he says it as the Son of God. And the Father is the origin of the Son, not an origin in time. The Son is not created, has no beginning like the Father has no beginning, but the Son does have his origin, as the fathers of the church would say, the archi, the source of the Son's life is the Father. And then the Lord Jesus says that that uh, one of those verses in the gospel that that people over the centuries have puzzled over so much when the Lord says, you'll recall the words, if you say a word against me, the Son of Man, it's forgivable. I'm paraphrasing rather than quoting. If you say a word against the Son of Man, it's forgivable. But if you say, uh, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, it's not forgivable. Remember that? He who sins against the Holy, Holy Spirit. And the reason why he says that is that the Son himself is saying that I don't have an independent, separate life. I am the Son of the Father, and he has poured out the Spirit upon me. And if you say that the Spirit that is poured upon me is evil, as the unbelieving leaders of the Jews were saying, then you are so blind that what is good appears to be evil to you. And there's no fixing that. You can't fix that. The only way for that to have been fixed were for those who rejected our Lord to repent of it. Then it's reparable. But otherwise, not even God can reverse that inherent rejection by calling the divine life itself in in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as being evil. So always... The divine persons live in each other, and they call us to live in them. Now, when we say of our Most Holy Lady that the boundaries of nature are overcome in her, and that her death is a deathless death, your deathless dormition, the hymns of the feast say. Now, to someone who is who is very uh, this-worldly-minded, they simply dismiss such language as being uh, sounding almost ridiculous, self-contradictory. How can you have a deathless death? Well, within the limitations of nature, you can't. But if those limitations are removed, you can. Every Pascha, Pascha morning, when we are all in church at the glorious matins of the resurrection of the Lord, the priest or the bishop reads the Paschal homily that is uh, attributed to St. John Chrysostom. 
There's a debate whether it really is from him, but what, but it, it is certainly traditionally attributed to him. We all hear that every year, and as it comes to its ringing climax, the perhaps most explosive announcement that's made in the course of that homily is, Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the tombs. Remember that? Pascal morning, Christ is risen, and not one dead remains in the tombs. Again, someone who has only the limited sight of this world will say, it's ridiculous, let's, let's go out to the cemetery, and the tombs are full of the dead. Christ is risen, and not one dead remains in the tombs, the church says. How can this be? It's because the Lord has not only returned to life, but escaped the touch of death and has risen to a life that death cannot touch anymore. And how does he do it? He does it in our humanity. He doesn't do it for himself so much as he does it for us. And that means that to the extent that we are joined to him as his creatures fashioned for eternal life, to the extent that we are joined to him, then what has happened to him and through him and in him also happens for us. And so in that sense, we say Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the tomb. And we say, as Bishop John said in his homily this morning, that there is this human person that all of this has been accomplished in her. And of course, it is his mother. Christ is risen from the dead, says St. Paul, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15. And that is to say that if one speaks of a first fruits, then there have to be later fruits. The second fruits, the later harvest, will be all of us with God's grace and our cooperation with it. But there is needed. It's not simply a decoration or frosting on the cake or butter on the bread. All those things are nice, frosting and butter. But, <laughs> but there's needed, not as something peripheral, but centrally, it is necessary that there be a human person in which the entire plan and destiny of God for his creation has been accomplished. And we might ask in response to that, well, is this not Jesus our Lord? Well, to that we must say this. Jesus our Lord, and this cannot be said too often because of the confusion that has entered into people's minds, not only in recent times, but in the past, but I think that, well, we have a worse case of it these days. Maybe not so bad in the Eastern churches because our 
liturgical experience continually bathes and immerses us in the, in the teachings of the faith. We learn our faith liturgically. The liturgy is the, the foundation upon which our faith is built. The liturgy foundationalizes the faith of the church. And so perhaps Eastern Christians would do a little better, I would hope a lot better, uh, in realizing who our Lord Jesus Christ is, and also that means uh, what he is not. And what he is not is that he is not a human person. He is a divine person who has taken upon himself what the theologians call human nature. Now, that may sound, as people frequently say it does, that may sound very abstract, but it's not so abstract. It means simply that if a person, good definition of a person, I would teach my philosophy students in the, in the college in which I taught before I moved to Wyoming, in speaking of, of personhood, I would say the easiest way to begin to understand what is meant by personhood is a person is someone who says, I, an acting subject. That's the formal definition. A person. When the Lord Jesus Christ, even when he has taken upon himself human nature in the incarnation, when he says, I, and he says, I, a lot, in the Gospels. When he does that, who is speaking? Who is behind that I? Who is behind that I is the eternal Son of the Father without beginning. Not some creature that began in the womb of the Virgin Mary. In the womb of the Virgin Mary, yes, something began, but it was the beginning of a divine person who had always been and always will be, the beginning of that divine person taking upon himself everything that is proper to humanity. So as St. Proclus of Constantinople, one of the lesser-known fathers, says, we don't worship a man who became God, but God who became man, right? So God who became man is a divine person, and since you, the Lord Jesus Christ can only be one person, that person is a divine one who has taken upon himself human nature. So in that sense, he is the great singularity that it only happens once Every time we celebrate the divine liturgy, the priest prays, remembering all those things that have been done for us, the cross, the tomb, the resurrection on the third day, the ascension into heaven, the sitting at the right hand, the second and glorious coming. These things happen only once, and the only one that can do these things is the divine Son of the Father, who has become incarnate. Yet there also must be a human person in which, in whom everything that God destines for us has been fulfilled. 
And that person is the Virgin Mary. And the reason why there must be that perfected human person is to show us the destiny for which we were created. Uh, my, my mentor, uh, Father Alexander Schmemann, uh, has a little book that, uh, three volumes actually, called Celebration of Faith. And they are collections of talks that in the years before the, the Marxist regime fell in the Soviet Union, he broadcasted there from the United States through Radio Liberty. And he has a chapter, there's one volume that's all about Our Lady. And there's a talk in there that is titled, Mary, the Archetype of Mankind. Now the word archetype means the model. The models, you could say. Mary, the model of mankind. In other words, you want to see what it means to be a person, a human person. You want to experience what it is to be a person. Then your experience, my experience, must be that of the Virgin Mary. And that is something that can't be taken for granted either. Because we suffer in our time from uh, what Father Alexander calls in his talk a fundamental spiritual disease. He calls it the greatest trouble of our times. He says... It's an anthropological, anthropos, the Greek word for man, anthropological heresy, a heresy about humanity. Most of the time, when we hear the word heresy, we think of doctrinal error, errors about who God is, errors about what God does, errors about the Trinity, errors about the divinity and humanity of Christ, Errors about what we believe about the Eucharist. Errors about what we believe about Mary and the saints, and on and on. But here, uh, it is said that the fundamental error of our time is an error about the human person. And until that's fixed, we won't make any progress in growing in the true faith in God. It has to begin with believing rightly, that's what the word orthodox means, believing rightly and praising rightly, what it is to be a human person. And there are factors very actively at work, and they influence us constantly. They're in the very air we breathe. They're in almost everything that we see and hear about who we are, that unless we unmask them for the errors that they are, it will not be possible for us to go further and deeper in faith. And as is often the case, these errors come in the form of two opposite extremes. Two extreme 
ideas, I'll use the word idea, but it's not just an abstract, an abstract thought. It influences the way we live and, and, and how we see things, our, our view of life. And the first extreme is making too little, making too little of the human person. Uh, to illustrate that, we'll just bring up a memory. When I was uh, about 12 years old, there was a very popular, it was one of the most popular uh, series on television that uh, I remember in school, we, we had to watch it as an assignment. How many of you remember the Cosmos series with Carl Sagan? So, uh, it's, it's dated, but it was the beginning of much more that's come in waves over and over and over in the last decade. And I remember uh, sitting there in the living room in the house in, where I grew up, and the first sentences, I can't quote them verbatim, but Carl Sagan said, on a minuscule, infinitesimally small blue dot in the universe, by chance, there evolved the being that we call man. Now, I was only 12 years old, but I knew that second that the essence of my faith had just been assaulted because I'd just been called an accident. An accident. Well, in how many ways is this said that we're accidents? That we can be reduced to a complication of electrochemical impulses. Whether we love, whether we hate, whether we're excited, whether we're transported, whether we're in awe, whether we're sad, whether we're joyful, this is all determined by electrochemical reactions in the brain. It can be reduced to that. It's one in a long parade of reductions. Many had gone before. In psychology, most of us have heard of Sigmund Freud, who reduced the religious impulse of the human being to simple wish fulfillment and trying to, to satisfy the, the desire for immortality. Well, as always, now there's some truth in all these things. Another one of my professors, uh, the great patristic scholar, Father John Meyendorf, would tell us, remember that every heresy is at least 90%. Now, he might have been exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> but nevertheless, the point was well made. Uh, there is truth in every heresy, and it may be as high as 90%. It's the 10% that gets you, though. You have to mask that 10%. Unmask it, rather. Unmask that 10% to see it for what it is. Or are we certainly cannot call him our friend, Mr. Marx, who uh, maintained that Religion, the famous quotation that religion is the opiate of the masses. He, by the way, was using that not directly as an insult to religion. He, he would say that life is bad enough, and so people need something to soothe them. They need some opium. And religion has provided that historically. 
Uh, there's no pie on the dinner table, so you'll have pie in the sky when you die. But once the great revolution has come and all the, all of the, uh, material of the world is equitably divided, then there'll be pie on the table and you won't worry about pie in the sky when you die anymore. So he wrote religion off to that. Both Freud and Marx said that within two generations after their death, religion would have disappeared from the Western world. Well, they have disappeared from the Western world. <laughs> but the religious impulse cannot be reduced simply to that try, that minimalistic portrayal of what the human person is. This notion of insignificance, yes, yes. Astronomy has told us, and I, I have I have a great, I, I enjoy a great delight. I'm an amateur astronomer. I love it. Yet, this notion that we are so insignificant, that people before us were confused into thinking that the earth was the center of the universe, and so they had a too high, too high of an opinion of themselves. Well, yes, it has been demonstrated that the planets revolve around the sun on the one hand. On the other hand, I look up at the sun and say, hello, sun. The sun does not look down on me and say, hello, David. There are different ways of, there are different expressions of centrality, you see. I am a rather curious creature that can say, hello, sun, hello, moon, hello, stars. And analyze and categorize and label them even as, as useful as that can be, as long as one doesn't take it too seriously. So the first extreme is to so minimalize and, and present as so insignificant what the human person is that we can never seem anything more than an accident. We certainly cannot make any claim to have any kind of eternal destiny. Now, is that not very common in, in what we hear and see uh, so much of the time, except in church and except to the extent that we are cultivating the faith in our own lives? But then, and this I guess will have to be the point where I conclude right now, there's the opposite extreme. It's, it's so curious that along with this minimizing the human person, there comes an equally opposite super-maximalizing of the individual. That for me to be free, I cannot be in obligation to anyone or anything. That there can be no control put on any of my impulses. That I must do what I want at the moment. That I must, as uh, when I, the last time I was up in this area was was last year uh, down at the monastery of the Theophany, and I think I I read some passages. I'm not going to do that today from the great Jewish rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Talks about time, the way we use time. We use time so much uh, like a fuel that we can burn up. I've got so much time, namely my lifespan, and I use that, I burn that up as a fuel so as to maintain my control over this imaginary kingdom of mine that I call my life. 
in which I can pretend that I am the sun and control the planets that revolve around me. But since it doesn't work most of the time, I have to burn up more and more fuel to make it appear as it does. Now, what has that all got to do with the Blessed Virgin Mary, you might ask? Well, Bishop again mentioned this morning that we hear very frequently in the liturgy the gospel text that was read today. In fact, it's the most frequently read gospel text uh, in, in the Byzantine liturgical cycle. The Martha and Mary and Martha, Martha and Mary has chosen the better part. We, we read it more frequently than we read the accounts of the Passion of the Lord. Although, granted, the accounts of the Passion of the Lord are more lengthy. That The passage of Martha and Mary is brief. But what is this, Martha, Martha? Martha is very much concerned with doing things that she regards as necessary. And the things that she's doing are not bad things. There wouldn't have been any lunch after liturgy today if there weren't somebody, if there weren't people doing those things. Yet, the temptation is to make doing things an end in itself, fuel to be burnt up so that I can have my control over my space. Mary has chosen being as the first love. She has chosen the better part, the one thing needful, says the Lord Jesus. Being, not doing all the time, but being. We, in our times, have almost forgotten how to be. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we, uh, we have such a struggle. Uh, and I think every Eastern, Eastern Catholic and Eastern Orthodox uh, community is, uh, experiences this struggle. You know, we're trying to maintain this, this, super rich, wonderful liturgical tradition uh, in an environment that doesn't have any time for being. And the trouble is that you can't do the Byzantine liturgy in little bits and bites with, with, a, with a commercial from your sponsor after every three or four minutes. <laughs> you've got to be able, you've got to have the capacity to have that long soak in the mysteries. And unfortunately, because we're so consumed with doing, our faculty for being has become weakened and flabby, and we ought to start exercising that at least as much, if if not more, as we care about our physical faculties. So Mary has chosen the better portion. This, Father Alexander, I think it's probably time for me to, to finish now, he speaks of this opposite extreme of making too much of ourselves. He says, the tragedy of our modern world is the endless affirmation of man's absolute rights and freedom, the seeking of his liberation and self-fulfillment, the rejection of any limits to his potential. The amazing paradox of our culture, however, is that these two views of man so obviously excluding one another, are in fact held together. They constitute the fundamental worldview of the modern man, who in addition seems to be totally unaware of the basic absurdity of holding these two things together. On the one hand, man is nothing. On the other hand, 
He must be everything. There is no freedom in him. Yet he demands to be free. The person does not exist as a subject transcending. We'll talk about transcending in the second talk. I mentioned it already. The bounds of nature are overcome or are transcended in you, O spotless virgin. And I, then I will add to that. And because that has been accomplished in you, there you are as the model for me. So, in this false tension of extremes, the person does not exist as a subject transcending its nature, yet we have our rights. <laughs> we are determined by our body, if one is a materialist. But we have the right truly to dispose of our body, even to dispose of our life. We no longer are spoken of having a soul, but yet our individualism is an absolute value. Well, talk about boundaries to be overcome. They are overcome in her and not in isolation from us. In falling asleep, you did not abandon the world, Orthodox. And the beautiful Kantakion, neither death nor the tomb could hold the mother of God. She prays without sleeping. It's a wonderful expression. I can't think of anywhere else that she was. She prays without sleeping. It doesn't say without ceasing in this case. That's what it usually says. But in the Kantakion, she prays without sleeping. And in her intercession is our unfailing hope. She is able because the bounds of these, what should be unnatural limitations for us are overcome in her. She prays like as we uh, pray in the liturgy of St. Basil. Uh, it always, I can't help but smiling in the midst of it. The, the, of course, the longer prayers. The seraphim stand around you, one with six wings, the other with six wings and pray with mouths that do not grow tired. Normally, uh, I, I'm sure the congregation, but especially the priest who is praying the prayers of the liturgy, uh, liturgy of St. Basil, knows what it is to have a mouth that does grow tired. <laughs> with mouths that do not grow tired, with voices that are never silent, and have found the fullness of home in the life of praise and in the life of of being. Mary has chosen the better part, and in her we can choose it too. And so we'll, we'll stop there for, to, for now, and I guess continue in another hour or so, if you can bear any more. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Father David. Of